Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you all had a happy Halloween. And this week's case is one of those cases you think's more like a horror movie than real life. Now, thanks to Tony Fairbairn for bringing to my attention this case and, of course, supplying links. Okay, so the references tonight are from police... the police website, actually. Uh, Sydney Morning Herald, ABC, Australia Missing Persons Register and Court Records. So, tonight we have a totally circumstantial case, one that took 40 years to have justice served and a number of witnesses were already dead by the time it got to trial. It's a story of 31-year-old mother of two, Roxland Margaret Bowie, and how she went missing on or about June the 5th, 1982. Roxlyn was 160 centimetres tall, of slim build, with brown hair and hazel eyes. She regularly wore reading glasses, and she was a loving and devoted mother of six-year-old Brenda and almost two-year-old son, Warren. Roxlyn was also a devoted daughter who had a good relationship with her oldies. At 17 years of age, Roxlyn would meet her 18-year-old husband, John Douglas Bowie, in 1968. They would marry in August of 71. Soon after, daughter Brenda came along in 75, Charlene in 77, and then in 1980, their son Warren was born. Now, sadly, Charlene died a few days after her birth. In 1978, the family moved to 93 Roke Street, Walgett, around an eight-hour drive northwest of Sydney. It's a small country town of around 2,000 people on the Barwon and Namoi rivers. Roxland doted over her kids. She loved baking cakes with her daughter and even made her a veil while they watched the Charles and Diana's wedding on TV. That was a while ago. Now, John Bowie worked as an ambulance officer in Walgett. He was known to like a drink and was known also to be a bit of a womaniser. So on the afternoon of Saturday the 5th of June 1982, Roxland was seen hanging out the washing. Now, later, she put the kids to bed and John went to the pub. Now, this would be the last time anyone would see Roxland alive. In fact, she's never been seen since. Now, John finished his shift at around 5pm on the 5th, and then he went home. He was seen later at the Imperial Hotel in town and had a drink with a Norman Pearson, Eddie Owens, and others. Now, John says he got there around 6.30 7pm and stayed until about 10.30 or 11pm, where he left the Imperial and went to the RSL club and stayed there for only half an hour or so for a quick nightcap. But an Edward Gudgeon said he saw John at the ambulance station at around 9 to 10 p.m. Now, Ed described John as seeming a bit under the weather and had probably one or two beers too many. But John described his condition on the night as not being drunk and stated 
that he didn't have a wobbly boot, but he had a few under his belt. At some time around 11pm, John knocked on the door of one of the caravans in the backyard of the property at 93 Euroka Street. Now, he asked the occupants if they'd seen Roxland. Now, Ruth Owens recalled that John seemed fairly intoxicated and was unsteady on his feet. Now, she said it was obvious to her that he'd had quite a bit to drink and that he was drunk that night to an extent she'd only seen on a couple of prior occasions. Now, her partner, Eddie Owens, said that John looked like he'd had a few. A Mr Coleman, who was also present in the caravan that night, that John knocked on the door, said that he presented as inebriated. So, what we can work out out of, I think, everyone's statement, including John Bowie's, is he was pretty pissed that night. Okay, so Walgett, it's a relatively small country town. It's late on a Saturday night, and John has driven from home to the Imperial Hotel, and then on to the RSL Club, and then back home. Now, this is a feat that a heavy drinker can accomplish, pissed as a fart. The roads are pretty wide, and where he lives, the blocks of land are pretty large, and there's no gutters to hit. So what I'm trying to say is that even if you are swerving all over the road, you probably won't hit anything that'll break your car. There's no formal guttering, so even if you go off to the side of the road, you're not going to break your wheel off. You're just going to go on into a little bit of a, a slight ditch. It's all dirt. There's no footpaths. Anyway, after knocking on her caravan door looking for Roxlin, Ruth Owen goes with John into his house, and here she finds a Dear John letter in a sugar bowl. Now, this letter reads... Dear John, funny that, Dear John letter, and it goes to John. Anyway, Dear John, I'm leaving you with the kids for good. I've thought about it for a long time now, and tonight I finally did it. I've packed a few things, and you can have the rest. I don't want anything to remind me of you or the kids. Don't try to find me, because I'll never come back to you. Bye, Roxlyn. Now, John reports Roxlyn missing the next day and police assure him that she'll just be back. She'll come back soon. Don't worry about it. A few days later, Roxlyn's mum and dad get a letter posted from Canamble. Now, this is about an hour and a half drive south of Walgett. Now, their letter reads, Dear mum and dad, just a short note to say that I've left John and the kids for good. I'm making my way to South Australia or Western Australia to start a new life. Please don't be hard on John because it wasn't his fault that I left. I will write again when I settle down. Love, Roxanne. Now, this letter was posted between the night of the 5th of June, 1982, so that's the night she goes missing, and 3.15pm on Monday, the 7th of June, 1982. All right, so we have John saying he went from home straight to the pub, then the club, and back home. But Gudgeon said he saw John at the ambulance station at around 9pm to 10pm. So already we have some inconsistencies on what went on that night. Now home life at the Bowie's place wasn't great by a long stretch of the imagination. 
Not only was John in a sexual affair with a Gail Marie Clark, but it looks like Roxley knew about it. Now, Gail ends up saying, about six months prior to June 1982, she'd separated from her husband, and during the two weeks of May school holidays in 1982, she'd holidayed in a caravan with friends on the banks of the Barwon River at Walgett. Now, it was during this time she met John Bowie in his capacity as an ambulance officer and formed a brief relationship with him. She went out with Bowie on a number of occasions in his van and on one occasion accompanied him to the Walgett RSL Club. Now, she'd previously been informed by Bowie that he and Roxlyn led different lives and that she'd had a boyfriend. On, on the occasion that they went to the RSL Club, Bowie pointed out a woman and a man to her in the club and told her that the woman was Roxlyn with her male friend. That sounds a bit weird, but that's anyway, that's what Gail said. Now, Gail was unable to describe that woman or man when she was interviewed by police six years later. Anyway, she went on. She continued seeing Bowie for the duration of the holidays and then returned to her home at 17 Tempe Street, Shalora. Some weeks later, Bowie phoned her and told he was coming. Told her he was coming to Sydney. Now, towards the end of June 1982, Bowie arrives at her home and told her that his wife had left him and suggested that he move in with her. I'm a, that's pretty upfront, isn't it? Now she she's not stupid. She refused this request, and although she went out with him on a few occasions. She terminated the relationship after two or three weeks and never saw him again. Gail said that during the time she knew him, Bowie was not a heavy drinker. She stated that when Bowie arrived in Sydney, he was extremely keen to form a serious relationship with her, but she never entertained the idea and terminated the relationship. Okay, so not long after Roxlyn goes missing, John's trying to shack up with a woman he's been having an affair with. But he's clearly miscalculated his chances. Further to this, on the 25th of May, now this is less than two weeks before Roxlyn goes missing, John does a 1,600km or a 1,000-mile round trip to spend time with Gail Clark on Roxlyn's 31st birthday. So he's such an asshole that rather than be at Roxlyn's birthday, his wife, he would rather drive, just drive all day to go and see his lover. Jeez. But get this. Just six days after Roxlyn disappears, John puts in a transfer request at his job as an ambulance officer to the Banks, Bankstown branch. Now that's in in Sydney, basically, which is close to Gail's house. And then on day 15 of her being missing, he tells his daughter that she will soon have a new stepmom. Way to go. I'm pretty sure this looks pretty sus to all of us. And there is a lot more. Within a couple of months of Roxanne going missing, and with Gail Clark not wanting anything to do with him, John meets an Anne. It's a, she's a nurse, and they end up getting married in 1984. She would later say that it wasn't a good relationship, 
John had affairs with other women, and there was violence in this relationship. They would separate and later divorce in 2008. Now, Brenda, John's daughter, recalled that while he was with Anne, there was always violence in the house. Brenda recalled John dragging Anne through the house naked while she put a wardrobe across the door to protect her little brother Warren and herself. Brenda also said that sometimes her father and Anne were fighting that they would lock the two children out of the house. She said, we'd have to sleep in the car and we'd ask the neighbours for food. Now Anne would also say, I'm not sorry the relationship is over. The violence went on and on. I don't have to worry about being belted up. So a lot of these statements came out of a 2014 coroner's inquest. Anyway, during this time, Brenda and Warren, who had some sort of normal, stable upbringing while their mother, Roxlyn, was home, were now being moved all, all around the place as John went through relationship after relationship. Brenda said that she'd attended 13 different schools and Warren 16. That's amazing, isn't it? That's You must be thinking within a year you're moving somewhere else. So here we have a mother missing since 1982. 32 years later, there's an inquest. There's been no record of Roxlyn accessing any bank accounts or flying overseas. She loved her kids and it was out of her character for her just to leave them. In fact, she'd been planning Warren's second birthday just before she disappeared. Then investigators hear from Ashley Timmons, who lived a few doors down from John and Roxlyn's place at Walgett. Now, she was at 123 Euroka Street. She told police that she would play in the backyard with her brother, and one day they uncovered something that freaked them out a bit. She said, My brother and I were playing snipers in the backyard and digging bunkers. So we dug a hole. And she also said they would usually dig around the backyard every weekend. I used a pick and shovel to dig the hole and dug approximately half a metre down. There was a lady's top with a round neck and crocheted little frilly collar, a slightly heeled lady's shoe, a fine gold chain with a little love heart, and men's dark pants. Ashley said there were also a number of bones. Now, she's only young, so she said, I didn't tell my parents about what we found. My mum was a butcher. We grew up in a butcher's shop, and these bones weren't like the bones we saw every day. We didn't want to get in trouble, so we buried them back straight away. So on the 22nd of March 2019, Investigators went to dig up this backyard to see if they could find anything. And they did. Police located a dress ring with the letter R inscribed on it, which a witness identified as belonging to Roxlyn. It had been given to her by her parents. Also located at that site was a metal fragment with a scalpel wrapper and two face masks. Now, these are items John would have access to as an ambulance officer in 1982. Now, they didn't find all of the items Ashley had found 25 years before. But then again, her father had done a lot of clearing over the years, which may have disturbed those items. 
Around six months after digging up the backyard, police haven't had enough evidence to charge John Bowie with the murder of his wife, Rox Lynn, 37 years before. Now, what investigators would dig up about John Bowie was quite disturbing. Other than him being an asshole, missing his wife's birthday to be with his lover, but we, they had all these witnesses come forward with more shocking stories. Former lovers told how they would go to the family home for sex with him when Roxlin was out. His ambulance workmates said that before he left the service in 1988, now what he's about, I'm about to tell you is absolutely shocking, what he told them was, pigs don't leave any evidence. They will never find her. And if you ever want to get rid of anybody, feed them to the wild pigs because they don't leave anything, not even the bones. He also said, the police are giving me a hard time about my wife, but the pigs do a good job and don't leave anything behind. Okay. So this reference to feeding his wife to the pigs wasn't just a crazy thing he was saying to try and make out he was some sort of criminal genius. I mean, who hasn't been chatting at work and come out with some true crime fact like, I don't know, it takes four minutes to strangle someone to death or something like that. I mean, if I was talking to my true crime people out there at work about some sort of fact like that, it probably wouldn't be so weird, but a lot of people would just look at you and think, what the fuck are you saying about feeding people to the pigs or talking about your wife going missing and give her to the pigs, there'll be nothing left. Anyway, you see, John Bowie, he actually had a stake in a pig farm with a friend just outside of Walgett. The co-owner, Gregory Paul Chapman, had given a statement to police in March of 1990. Now, Chapman said, John had a small share of a pig farm that I had an interest in, and the farm was just a hobby. He said John would take care of the pigs when he was away on business, which sometimes was maybe a few weeks at a time, and John's main duties were to feed them. Now, a week before Roxling goes missing, Chapman and his wife had to go to Queensland because his mum had had a bad turn and she would end up dying on the 6th of June. So the 6th of June is the day after Roxland goes missing and they would still be up in Queensland at that time. So during this period, John was tasked with feeding these pigs. Now, did John use his opportunity to dispose of Roxland's body by feeding her to the pigs? Something he was boasting about years later? Now, not a trace of her has been found since she went missing. I mean, they lived out in the sticks a bit, so you could bury a body in the bush, but there'd always be some chance a jogger would come along and find something as they seemed to always do. But feeding a body to the pigs would almost guarantee there wouldn't be any trace at all. Oh, and by the way, Chapman, you know, his mate with the piggery, He broke off this piggery arrangement after John tried to get onto his wife after Rox Lynn went missing. I mean, this John Bowie is just toxic scum. Okay, and when he moved to Sydney, he pawns off all of Rox Lynn's jewellery. I mean, you think, even if he hated his wife, 
Maybe he could give the jury, pass it on to his kids or something. But there were more witnesses to have their say about John. Look, an ex-girlfriend was told by John that he came home and said police had checked out the rue pits and an old mine shaft. But he told her that if he was going to do something to Roxlyn, he would have fed her to the pigs. There would have been nothing left to find. There's another woman who said that she was working at a truck stop around 1990 and believed John, who was then working as a bus driver, was keen on her. Now, she told him she was having problems with her then-husband and wanted someone to kill him. Now, apparently, John replies to her that he'd killed before and that it wasn't a nice feeling. So, we'll get some examination of those letters. Forensic examination of the envelopes and letters that were sent to her parents and the one left in the sugar bowl in the house, well, they didn't have Roxlyn's DNA on them. But the writing was examined by several handwriting experts and they agreed it was Roxlyn's handwriting. Now, both were written on the same notepad on consecutive pages. Now, investigators had three theories about these letters. One... Roxlyn wrote the notes with intention to leave, but they were later used by someone else as a cover for her disappearance. Two, she was forced to write the letters. And three, she actually did write the letters and she did just leave of her own accord. Now, at trial, they would say that the most credible of these theories was that John made Roxlyn write these under duress. So the prosecution's case was that on the 5th of June 1982, John Bowie, by a deliberate act or acts, caused the death of his wife and, at the time he committed the act or acts, had an intention to kill her. Now, they had no idea how she was killed or what weapons, if any, were used. Again, they also had no body. This would be a circumstantial case, and as you know, these are so much harder to prosecute. On the 31st of October 2022, it took the jury less than five hours to find John Bowie guilty of the murder of his wife, Roxlyn, 40 years ago. 40 years it took to get justice. Now, as it only happened a a fuckball of weeks ago, he's yet to get sentenced. Well, there you go. Another toxic scumbag that kills his spouse rather than getting a divorce. He took a loving and devoted mother from her two kids, leaving them devastated at first, thinking their mum had left them, and then for them to find out years later that their father had actually killed her. Now, I've covered a lot of spousal homicides here. Most are committed for for greed or sex or both. Usually the perp wants to get out of the relationship for a new one, but doesn't want to split the money. Now, this ass clown killed his wife and the new love interest, the reason he probably did it, didn't even want to know it. But Roxlyn was never forgotten. Not by her family and friends and not by the police. More and more of these cold cases are being resolved. More and more of these scum that have been looking behind their backs for years are being put away. Let's hope one day John Bowie has enough guts to tell his family exactly what happened to Roxlyn. Okay, so 
I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the lights on. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Boom, fuckalunga. But can I just ask that you take the time to share podcasts with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and, of course, commercial free. Best of all, it's free just to help us out like that. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com. We can stream each episode without having to have a podcatcher or iPod or whatever. There's links to merch and everything there. Well, that's about it. I'm finally getting these few words out. It has been an absolute nightmare last three or four weeks at work. It has just been brain-numbingly soul-destroying. Anyway, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Fogalanga. Fogalanga.